Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Uh, let me just invite you to bow with me. Let's pray before we uh, hear the message. God, we know that you want us to believe the truth. But through the letter that James wrote, we also receive your challenge and invitation to live the truth, to walk according to what we believe so that our lives would change and not only our minds. We pray that you would make this so, that each time we look into the book of James, you would stir in us so that our faith cannot simply be contained in our thoughts, but that we would walk in the way of the Lord and we would live after you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to move past introduction and get right into the book of James proper. And the title of the message is Growing Through Trials. Growing Through Trials. We're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And I want to invite you to read that with me. Here's what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So let me ask you guys a question. How many of you have been really enjoying the cold winter we've been having? How many of you guys just loving it? Anyone? A few of us polar bears, we like it. I've heard a lot of grumbling this year about the weather because it's been especially cold. Now, this is a picture I snapped in the parking lot a couple weeks ago. I was just so blessed because we were expecting a ton of snow and we got it. And I'd sent out that email the night before um, we were still having church. I was expecting to come out and preach to the elders and the deacons. And uh, instead, we had a full house. And I watched people pushing their baby strollers through the snow. And I thought... This, is, this would only happen in Chicago. Thank you, God, for the commitment of our people to fight through the natural resistance. And so I know that it has not been an easy winter, and I know that it's been really uncomfortable for us. But even then, I, I know this also, that every winter we survive that's like this makes us a little tougher. And you never really appreciate the toughness that you're building up until you go to Southern California and you see people in their North Face coats because it's 50 degrees and all of a sudden you're like a, a polar bear. And you're like a bunch of wusses, you know, <laughs> huddled up in their North Face because it's 50 and they're shutting down schools because it dipped down into the 40s and we're laughing. I, I remember living in Atlanta and one time we got half inch of snow, the entire city lost its mind and shut down. And I'm going 70 on the highway going, this is great, no traffic. And so, you know, you get this little bit of pride because when you go through adversity, it really stinks at the time, but you discover consistently that on the other side of that adversity, you're actually stronger. It's toughening you. If we never had adversity, we'd probably never grow. And so it's important that we appreciate the dual nature of trials and struggles is on the one hand, it stinks to be in it. But on the other hand, it's great to come out of it. And if you survive and if you've learned what you need to learn, you will never be the same again on the other side of those trials. That's essentially the message of this short passage from the book of James. 
And it's a theme that, that repeats throughout Scripture that there are two choices we have in life. We can go through trials, which everyone has to do anyway. You don't really have an option, do you? Can you say, uh, nah, I don't like that choice. I choose to never go through trials. Can that work for anyone? Can you just decide, I, I'd like a trouble-free life, thank you. You don't have a choice. Everyone has to do this. You have to go through trials. But what James is saying is if you get your head right, you can actually grow through trials too. Now, you don't have a choice about the first one, but not everybody will have the second experience. Everyone goes through it. Not everybody grows through it. And so that's really what the message is about this morning. I, I could not come up with a clever three-point outline, so I just want to highlight certain words that James uses in this passage that I think really jump out at us, and if we get them wrong, we'll misunderstand what he's saying. And so I want to highlight certain words and spell out for us what James wants us to understand about life following Christ. The first word I want to highlight is this word consider. Consider. Look what it says in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I don't think any honest person can claim that they enjoy suffering while it's happening. I've heard some people fake like they are okay with it because they're trying to be good Christians. Um, But I don't think any honest person says, you know what, I've truly enjoyed this last round of suffering. It's just been great. Uh, I was way too comfortable, and I welcomed this bit of pain and struggle in my life. Nobody can honestly say that, and no one should. I don't think the message of James is, hey, fake it and pretend you like it. Do you remember it was the Animal House, that fraternity movie, where you get slapped and goes, thank you, sir, may I have another? Is that the right movie? So stupid, right? <laughs> thank you, sir, may I have another? Nobody actually believes that or feels that. When life slaps you, you hate it. And when, when you get slapped by life, when you go through trials, there are a host, there's a host of negative feelings that naturally rise up in us whenever life is treating us poorly. We often feel feelings of betrayal or abandonment. We feel lonely. We feel afraid. We feel defeated. We feel sorry for ourselves, whenever we encounter struggles of many kinds, that is the natural response is we hate it. We wrestle with it. We, we don't enjoy it. We want it to be done as quickly as possible. And while we're going through it, it defines our lives. We'll tell anyone who will listen, well, you want to know how I'm really doing? Sit down and let me, you got a couple hours? Let me tell you how I'm really doing. It ain't good. And that's the natural and honest response all of us have to suffering. There isn't a verse in the Bible that tells us that we should pretend that's not true, that a truly good Christian loves them some good struggle. No no verse in the Bible teaches that you're supposed to get to a place of spiritual nirvana where you enjoy suffering. But here's what he says. Even in the midst of that natural response to life's trials, we can choose to have a different point of view. The word consider, whenever it appears in Scripture, is a way of saying, I know there's a natural response, but you also are empowered to have an intentional response. There is what you feel and there's what you choose to see. 
And as Christians, that is something we have as a gift from God is we are always empowered to make a different choice. You can succumb to the natural feelings and that's the end of your story and that's it. How uninteresting, how pathetic if the natural negative feelings in response to suffering is where your story ends. And for so many people, because they don't know that God has said this to us, that is where it always ends is, my life stinks, the end. I don't want to read that book, do you? Do you know that you cannot sell a movie in America that has a sad ending? They do focus groups year after year, brave, independent people go, we're going to make a first sad movie in America. And then focus groups say, you're going to make no money. All right. In the end, the hero walks out of the flames and is victorious. And in Korea, this opposite. You can't make a happy movie in Korea. You, if you're smiling at the end, you're making no money, right? But for some reason in America, we expect every ending to be happy. The truth is, suffering produces pain. And yet, even in the midst of that natural pain, we are always empowered to turn our eyes and our minds elsewhere, not as a mind trick, not as a head game, but as a genuine way of taking another point of view, and it changes the way you experience what you're going through. Let me give you an illustration. Near my house on West Bartlett Road is a railroad crossing. And before we moved there, I remember Samantha Lee um, told us, oh, the one thing about our neighborhood is this railroad track. And I'm like, railroad track? If that's the only worry, sold, let's do it. But she goes, no, you've got to understand, this railroad track is going to become a big part of your life. I didn't understand what she meant until I moved. This stupid railroad track is one of the defining things of our family life. Because it's not the kind of railroad track where trains just keep going. That would be great. If the, but this is one of those railroad tracks where we have like rock quarries and we have concrete plants we have metal recycling processing plants all around us. So these trains stop right on the middle of the tracks. I'm sitting in my car going, what on earth is this junk? And I'm watching it, and it just, and it stops. And I'm going, no, that's not right. And the first time that happened, I'm like, I'm surely they're just kind of doing a little maintenance check. Some, maybe there's a deer crossing. The, so I'm waiting. Ten minutes go by. No movement. Fifteen minutes. No up to 20 minutes, you're sitting there looking at a parked train blocking a road. And I'm just yelling and fuming. I'm hitting my steering wheel. It's so infuriating. And when you're in a hurry, and I have to cross this track sometimes six times a day. We're so happy. And when I see there's no train, I gun it. I don't care if I get a $100 ticket. I, if I see a train coming, I will actually try to go up because I cannot stand getting caught at it. And so one time I, w- I was sitting there just particularly stewing, and I thought, well, okay, everyone in front of me and everyone behind me is stuck in the same train. We're all feeling the same thing. That makes my experience completely average and normal. But what if, what if, beyond the natural frustration I feel, I could adopt a different point of view about this stupid train? What if I could accept that every time I get caught at this train, it's God's invitation for me to shut up and sit still? A, a, a non-voluntary imposed period of stillness, which is necessary for me as a human being to flourish. Because the truth is, many days, I actually don't have 10 or 15 minutes of nothing. Most of the time, 
I'm constantly thinking, constantly moving, constantly talking or listening. There is not a still moment in my entire day waking to sleeping. So what if I could adopt a different mindset? And this is not just a head game. It's another way of experiencing something I have to go through anyway. I can't yell and make the train move. I've tried. Stupid train. This is unacceptable. It's ridiculous. Who's watching this place? And it never moves the train. And I realized the only thing I can move in that scenario is me. I think that's what James has in mind. He's saying you cannot change the suffering most of the time. If you could, you would. But every one of us will run into trouble where we will do our very best to circumvent it and we will run out of options and we'll realize in this situation, there's nothing to do but go right through it. I can't shorten it. I can't avoid it. I'm going to suffer. You have to go through it. But what if you chose to grow through it? What if you actually consider that this is not all that it appears to be? There is a natural feeling, but there's an opportunity buried in this trial which the wise person will mine and grow wealthy from. Smart business people make money whether the market is up or down. The rest of us just lose, right? I mean, but the smart, shrewd guys, and sometimes the dishonest guys, it doesn't matter if the market is going up or down, they're getting richer. 24-7. That's just the nature of it. And it's possible for us to have that same approach to life spiritually. We can become spiritually wealthy whether the, the market is up or whether it's down. I think here's another practical way of phrasing what James is saying. The story of your entire life is filmed from one camera angle at a time. You know, most movies, every one and a half seconds, they change the camera angle because they've done studies and the American attention span is now roughly 1.5 seconds. Just, just watch a music video or a TV show and you'll realize for no reason at all, in the middle of a calm dialogue in a car, they're switching camera angles constantly. It's because we can't sit still and look at anything for a while. But the truth is, our life story is not shot from 18 different angles. We have one camera. And that's the only camera available to us to record the story of our lives. So another way of saying that is the life you experience and the life you remember is completely decided by what you choose to look at. Your one camera angle defines your whole life story. Maybe said another way, the only thing you will ever see is what you choose to look at. And most of us spend our whole lives looking at nothing at all. We only look at what life makes us look at. We never choose to look anywhere else. My life is sad, so I'm going to be sad. And that's the story of our life. Poor me, my life. And, you know, for some people, I don't want to make light of it. Your, your struggle is more than just, oh, I don't have enough sweaters. It's a serious struggle. But what if that's all you ever see is what life tells you to see? It hands you junk and all you see is junk. But do you realize that we have freedom and power in Christ to choose to look elsewhere? We can change the camera angle with a decision and with reliance on the Lord. We can look at it differently. And when we do, it's not just a different point of view. It's a whole different experience. You don't just change your perspective. You change your life by looking differently. Now, he also says, consider it pure joy or all joy. And I want to unpack that word a little bit. What he's saying is this. Don't, don't mix the two. Don't say, well, I'll look at the sour grapes and I'll have a different point of view. He says, just eject the negative feelings as altogether unhelpful and worthless. 
They're there anyway. Every human being ever born has that response to suffering. But when you dwell on it, there's nothing good that comes out of it. Yes, you have to be honest about how badly you feel in the midst of trials. When you get fired, when, when your spouse cheats on you, when your child gets sick, when you, whatever, those are negative things. And you have to get honest about the fact that I don't like this. I really feel badly here. But what he's saying is don't dwell on it because there comes a point after you've owned your natural response that you have to say dwelling on this has no worth or value to me. Every human being, in fact, every animal knows to feel negative in negative circumstances. And to dwell on that, when's the last time you whined about your life and it got better because you whined enough? Does the universe have in the complaints department, they're like, dude, we've got to give this guy a better situation. He's, this is the 18th time he's here complaining. Can we give him a free drink or something? It doesn't work like that, does it? Complaining doesn't improve the picture ever. And so what James is saying is, because that's so unhelpful, just eject it. Reject those natural feelings. Not that they don't exist, but say, I'm not going to dwell on them because dwelling on them has never once improved my lot in life. Instead, I will wholly embrace the other side. I will choose to look at something and choose not to look at the other thing. I think that's one of the ways that happy people stay happy is they direct their eyes where they want their eyes to be. Unhappy people, they have no neck. Their eyes are just whiplashed anywhere because life tells them where to look. And so he says, why don't you instead choose to eject all unhelpful, worthless feelings and choose instead to fill your perspective with the opportunity that is existing and buried under every trial. So let's look at that word trials, because that's also a very interesting word James uses. The word trial, what I'm realizing the more I study the Bible is English is an altogether insufficient language. We have words, we have one word for things that ought to have 18 words in our vocabulary. And then we have 18 words for things that should just have one word. Right? Dude, bro, <laughs> you know, like, how many words do you need to refer to another guy? But for certain words, we have only one word when there are so many nuances and richness to the truth. This word trials, the Greek word is very interesting. It could have two meanings at the same time. One sense of the meaning is this. It could refer to external adversity, the trials that are beaten on you from the outside. And then the, and the second meaning is the inner enticement to sin. It is the temptation that comes from the inside. And the truth is, both, and that's why, depending on the, the translation you read, that word will either be rendered trials or temptations. The two things are actually pretty much the same in the experience of being a Christian. You will experience in adversity as well as temptation the exact same spiritual dynamic, which is what? Both external trials and internal temptation push and seduce you to do one thing to forfeit and, and surrender, abandon your convictions and your faith and choose the path of least resistance. When there's a lot of trouble, there's a strong temptation to take the easy way out and cut corners morally and ethically and principle. You can, you can see the diminishment of a person's character very often because life got so hard, they stopped caring about being decent people. They stopped caring about God's standards. They said, you know, if life's going to treat me like this, I'm going to act like this. And that's one of the ways that external adversity wages war against our faith is he's saying, you know what? Listen, self, your life stinks right now. Why should you fight so hard to be a good person? 
Why should you care about what this unfaithful God expects of you when God hasn't shown up when you needed him? Why did you just do what makes you feel good? Why did you just do what's easy? Why fight? The same thing happens when you encounter temptation, the strong inner desire for something you know you don't value, but right now you really want it. When you're dieting, and that's the day that some jerk brings 18 boxes of free donuts, you're like, seriously? On my cheat day, big jar of broccoli, and on my diet day, a giant box of donuts. You know, sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? And the, the, the battle we're fighting is in here. I want that, but I don't want it. And you're waging war. And what's the temptation? It's to abandon your convictions and give in to that, take the path of least resistance. In other words, both external adversity and internal temptation are waging war on your faith by getting you to stop fighting. To just give in. Do what's natural. This world is filled with external adversity and internal temptation. And its single-minded goal is to get you to do what the serpent got Eve to do. Hey, do you really have to care that much what this God says? Where is he now in your pathetic life, in your terrible situation? Where is this God when you can't get a job in the industry you love, when the person you're in love with doesn't even know you exist, when you study so hard and the best grade you can make is a C, where is this God? And so then why should you care what he wants for you when he doesn't care what you want for you? Every day this world will scream at you, isn't that the way it really is? Isn't that the way it really is? God doesn't care about you, so why should you care about him? It's a lie, but the world is screaming that lie 24-7 through a million voices. Do you know that's true? Every single day, You will be bombarded with that message. God doesn't care about you. Why should you care about God? If you listen to that voice, you will not end up with the life you know you're supposed to have. Your life will be taken in a very different direction. So James is saying, because the world is so filled with this lie, and every day the world and God's enemy wants you to stop fighting and basically slide down this grease till towards whatever comes naturally to everyone. Because that's everywhere, we have to fight every day to fix our eyes on where our eyes belong. Passivity will kill you in life. You let the world and your circumstances tell you what to think and do and look at, you will die spiritually. There is no flourishing for the passive person. Nothing in this world ever gets stronger by passivity. That's a good time in the message for somebody to say amen. Just show me you're awake, listening. Agree with me. Otherwise, I'm going to start telling lies up here. Listen. He says, if you live this way, then what will develop is something called perseverance. A intentional and active constancy, a steadfastness, endurance, stability, concrete foundations for your feet so that in the midst of the tornado, I shall not be moved. We all dream of being that person. Throw it, come on, bring it on. Whatever life has Throw it at me. I'm going to make it. We all want to be that person. But most of us won't be that person unless God gets a hold of us and changes our approach to the trials of life. When I think about perseverance, it's like this. 
Both external adversity and internal temptation are like the plates that you put on a barbell in the gym. It provides the resistance without which you will never grow and you'll never know how strong you actually are. Do you guys ever see, watch SpongeBob SquarePants? I love SpongeBob SquarePants. I don't seek it out, but when my kids are watching it, I'm like, I'm like hypnotized. I can't move. I love SpongeBob. My favorite episode is one where SpongeBob, who's got scrawny arms, buys these, this mail-order inflatable huge arms because he wants to hang out with the muscle guys. And they are in awe of him because all he has to do is go... And his arm's getting huge. And he's walking around like this. And he looks awesome until they have an anchor-throwing contest. And he realizes fake arms can't throw anything. And it's just hilarious. Just watch it. You'll get some theological insight from that episode. It's great. And what you learn from that is if there is no resistance, there is no strength. You can lift balloons all day long. 85 sets of lifting air. You're not going to get any stronger. That's just, that's, you don't have to be a genius to know that. But the strange thing is we're constantly pulling weight off the bars because it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's because I watched the movie Lone Survivor recently. Um, but I've got Navy SEAL on the brain lately. I've just been thinking about Navy SEALs for like the last week and a half almost nonstop. Because that movie... Got, it burrowed itself into my brain. I, I was catching little things. And so, so let me tell you, I think the Navy SEALs are one of the greatest cultural pictures for us available as Americans to understand the principles James is trying to teach. To become a Navy SEAL is basically to be stretched to the absolute edge of humanity and realize there's still something left in the tank. To become a Navy SEAL, you have to go through something. It's, it's a very long training, uh, training program called BUDS, but it's basic underwater demolitions. But in the middle, around week three, is what they call Hell Week. Because after week three, it gets real expensive. They shoot a lot of bullets, and th- so they want to thin the herd a little bit. You don't want all the guys getting past week three, because that's when all the dollars are spent. So they go, at week three, let's put them through hell and see who makes it. And 75% quit. And that way, they spend less money and train only the most promising candidates. Let me tell you a little bit about Hell Week. Um, They push these guys to the point where some of them drown and have to be resuscitated. They die for a little and have to be brought back to life. It's live fire training. It's to the point where you swear these guys don't realize we could die. You know, it occurs to you in the middle that, do they know that I'm almost about to drown here? Uh, is anyone paying attention? I could die. And that's part of the training. Is they want you to feel what it's like when the, nobody rings a bell and pulls you out at the last minute. You could actually die. In fact, recently one guy did die in the training. How much does that sting? I, he died in the training. These are, these are pictures of Hell Week. They just, they're made to stay outside in the freezing cold, covered with mud. They're going back in the water. And for some of you, this will be the worst part of it. Over the course of almost six days... In the best-case scenario, they get four hours of sleep over six days. A treat, a reward for your squad doing well is you get to close your eyes for four minutes without getting hit. Here's the, here's the amazing thing. <laughs> what is that even? That looks like something we used to do in Korean youth groups. Make the kids lie in the water. And <laughs> so messed up. Here's, here's though, as hard as the external adversity is in Hell Week, I think the hardest part of Hell Week is the psychological warfare. 
Because the entire time you're going through hell, the instructors are on bullhorns and they're saying this to you. Hey, sucks to be out here. It's freezing cold. You are so tired. Ring the bell. Quit. We'll give you a nice warm room. We'll dry you off, give you comfortable clothing. We'll give you a nice hot meal. You can sleep. Don't you want to sleep? Aren't you tired? Aren't you sleepy? Aren't your eyelids getting heavy? And the whole time, they never, ever stop. All week, they're shouting to you, come on, quit. You know what they're doing? They are giving an amplifier to the voice that's already in your head. See, and that's the way the world works too, I believe. It's not like the world can make me think things I don't think. It's just amplifying the voice that's already in there, isn't it? Because when my life gets hard, no one has to tell me maybe I should bail. I'm saying that to myself. Do you know how many times I've said that since, st- since starting ministry at this church? Seriously, I can't go on anymore. I'm going to die early if I don't get some sleep. I can't take another phone call. Please, just pull the plug. I've said that in my head so many times. So when someone else says it, it's hard. Because I've been telling myself that all day long. And now here's somebody else giving me an invitation. Go ahead, just... The plug. I think that's the reason so many of my colleagues change churches every three years. Do you know the average tenure of a pastor in my generation is two and a half years? I'm almost going on 20 years here. I am like a miracle, I think. <laughs> you know, but let me tell you something. I know why they move. Because it'd be so easy to just go, can I just bail and change scenery, recycle my old messages, sleep a little bit? Nobody expects anything of me at the new church because they don't know me yet. That external voice echoing your internal voice makes it really difficult to see the light at the end of the tunnel, doesn't it? And all they have to do to leave that misery is ring a bell. How easy have they made it? Just go... Ding-a-ling-a-ling, and then all of a sudden, warm, comfortable, full, sleeping. That looks like heaven when you're going through hell. And when you do, as a sign of your forfeiture, you take off your training helmet, and you line it up on the curb next to the bell. And out of all the guys who start the program, three out of four will ring that bell and lay down their helmet and quit. That is such a compelling and accurate picture of what life is like following Jesus in this world. Every day, you are told, hey, give it up. This is so stupid. Nobody cares about what happens on Sunday. The only real life is right now, and your life sucks. Go out and get you a better one. Stop following the rules. Stop caring about a God who doesn't care about you. Quit! And every day you can feel like, oh, that just sounds so good. It will ruin everything. But at the moment, it just sounds so good. And although those three out of four guys lay down that helmet and sleep for the first time in five days, for the rest of their lives, that will go down in their record. I didn't have it. I quit. I rang that bell. I can't unring it. It's done. I started it and I didn't finish it. One of the things that bonds Navy SEALs together is Hell Week and the fact that all of them got pushed to the edge of their humanity and they did not ring that bell. They didn't ring that bell. Somehow, they remained steadfast and they made it to the other side of that. I think that shared experience is so powerful, it's one of the greatest bonds 
between those soldiers. That's why they're not fighting for the country anymore. They're fighting for their brother. I think that if we could endure better, that shared victory experience would bind us together in ways that nothing else could. We would look at each other and we'd say, I know what you've been through. I see your attitude. I'm right there with you. We're survivors. We're victors. Let me give you another word here, joy. I think this is the craziest word in the whole passage. What, what does the word joy... Sorry, Joy, I know it's your name, but it's a crazy word when you juxtapose it to suffering. What does joy and suffering really have to do with one another? How can you find joy in the middle of suffering? Well, I think joy is realizing that your faith is bigger than your trials. It's realizing... You know, I remember this because I, would, I was working out like crazy when I was a freshman in college... I was living across the hallway from a guy named Mike Lewis um, who wanted to lift weights in the weight room downstairs twice a day. So I spent three hours in the weight room every single day in my first year of college. But we would work out all the time on these lower weights just trying to get cut. And I wondered one day, just how strong have I gotten? So he said, let's max out today. And I'm like, oh, I'm a little nervous. And, of course, I'm, I'm kind of a scrawny guy. They started putting plates on and Everyone in the gym goes, let's see what this guy's got. And I didn't know if I was going to make it. I won't tell you how much weight because you'll all be jealous. But <laughs> let's just say the bar was bending, all right? And I'm putting that sucker on my chest and like, do I have it? And until you put that weight on and try, you never really know, do you? You could say I feel strong, but how do you know you are strong? Do you know what a world of difference there is between feeling strong and being strong? And the, the, the difference maker is that first trial, that first heavy weight that gets put on you. And when you lift it, it isn't comfortable, it's not fun. But when you put that thing off your chest and you lock your arms, that's the joy James is talking about. The joy is not when you're going... The joy is at that moment. Yes! And what you realize is I dug deep and I, there's something there. God showed up. I I searched deep into my heart and my soul and I did not come up empty because what God said he was pouring in was actually there. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. How honest is that? But later on, however... It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. All training is uncomfortable and painful. You know, you see these people who are like, yeah, and they're lifting the weights to their last mile. They they act like they like it. They don't like the feeling that they have right that minute. What they like is how they're going to feel in a minute. Nobody smiles Because of the suffering, they smile because in a minute, I'm going to see something. Just give it a minute. Wait for it. It will come. I was thinking this today about, uh, this week, about an illustration for how to kind of describe that joy feeling. And here's one. My son Noah's going to go to college pretty soon. Lord willing. (laughs) If God opens the doors and... I rob a bank. So, 
He could go to college. Now imagine, any parent who's ever sent their kid to college, it's the same exact feeling. A little less so maybe when you're sending a son, but when you're sending a daughter, you're like, oh, please protect her. Here's what you feel. That kid's going to go out of my house into the real world, and every day there are going to be tests of their character and their morality. And you're going to wonder, I tried my best, I tried my best, I poured everything in, but is it going to take? Is there something there? Imagine, imagine this nightmare, Noah. Imagine that I could turn invisible and follow you around for your first year of college. (laughs) Yes, yes. And you know what? It would give me a heart attack because every day I'd see, oh, here it comes. Here's the temptation. Here's that trial. Is this going to knock him off his feet? And imagine that moment. I honestly wonder, even though I kind of hope I would put my bet on you, three to one odds, still somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, is he going to make it? Is that faith going to hold? Is all that good home-brewed upbringing going to take? And imagine watching him without my supervision, and he makes the right choice. He says the right thing. He does what is right in the sight of the Lord. What will I feel at that moment? Yes. Yes. There's something in there. So bring the trials, because the more trials that come, the more we will put on display what is normally hidden in the times of comfort and peace. You don't see a person's faith in the good days nearly as clearly as you see it in the bad days. And what joy comes when the storm hits and the house stands. What joy. That's what we all long for, isn't it? Let the storms come, but I will still smile because there's something there. In the few minutes I've got left, let me give you one last word here. The ultimate result of all this, the motivation is this. Why would anyone choose to live this way? To take on this counterintuitive perspective to suffering. Why would you do it over the long haul of your life? Because he says this, the ultimate goal is to become perfect. Now, don't take the wrong message there. last thing I want to do is produce some neurotic perfectionist people. Okay, But here's what he means. Let perseverance... Finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. The reason I use that word perfect is because that phrase mature and complete translates a Greek word that is better translated perfect. And in the Greek way of thinking, the word perfect is not awesome, it's the best, it's, this, it's complete. It is what we're after. It is now like when an interior decorator goes, okay, hold on, hold on, I just got to move that feather right there. Okay, that's it. It's perfect. When a chef plates your dish, you know, I don't know where they come up with this stuff, but that one last little squirt of dipping sauce. There. It's perfect. That's what we're talking about. That's the Greek concept of perfection. It's not that it's, not that it's ultimately perfect, but that to the person looking at it, it's complete now. It's what we're after. And here's the thing. If you're an American, chances are you are in the pursuit of perfection in some area of your life, aren't you? See, I think only people in the developed world can pursue perfection. Everyone else is trying to pursue survival. <laughs> you know, kind of third world, they're like, dang, i just like to eat today. I would sure like to not die today. Only in a comfortable place like the, the developed West can we be in pursuit of perfection. And we all are, aren't we? Just about every American has a dream house that they'd like to build one day. Some people even clip out little things from magazines and have a scrapbook. Someday, I'm going to build this dream house. 
I have one. Never going to happen. It's fun to dream. That's why we call it a dream house. Some people are in pursuit of a perfect career or a perfect portfolio. I don't have enough yet, but soon I'm going to have soon, just a little more. Some people are in pursuit of the perfect body or the perfect wardrobe. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I really need red cowboy boots. I just, what am I going to do without red cowboy boots? I have to have them. I've got all these jeans and red cow. So you're, you buy it and you're like, now I'm, I really need gray cowboy boots. Red ones are great, but I've got to have gray ones. And some of us are in pursuit of perfection. Here's how you know what you're trying to, some of us, this is bad, we're in pursuit of the perfect children. I'm not perfect, so I'm going to make sure my kid's perfect because I stink. But God forbid you should stink like me. I'm going to ruin your life by making it perfect. And some of us are killing our children by using them to make ourselves feel better. Like it or not, that's what we're doing. We are in the pursuit of perfection. How do you know what you ultimately value? It's what you're trying to perfect. What you're chasing constantly with this obsession, I'm not there yet, a little more, I can't be satisfied with this. Do you realize for whatever thing you're passionate and pursuing, you're totally dispassionate about a thousand other things? Raise your hand if you could care less about your wardrobe. You don't care. As long as it covers your nakedness, you don't care what you wear. Raise your hand if you're one of those people. Yeah, we could tell. We could tell. Okay. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm just teasing you. Right? Raise your hand if you could care less about money. As long as you have enough to eat. No one cares if I'm rich. I don't care if I'm rich. I'm one of those guys. I, I honestly don't care about money. I don't even know how much we have. Honestly. I, I'm as far from concerned about money as you can get. But there are other things I care about. So where are you? You can tell what you value because there are some things you're, you're relentless in the pursuit of perfection. And other things you could care less. Just, I, I don't care about this area. I'm, it's good enough for me. You know what I'm talking about? It's good enough for me. And that's how you know what you're really living for. Is what do you dismiss as, eh, good enough. I went to church, you know, I, I read the Bible when I was in seventh grade. Good enough. I ain't killed anybody lately. I'm still married to the same one. Good enough. That's how you know your faith is not the ultimate value for you because it's good enough. Where I am right now, it's good enough. Well, what else do you want from me? It's good enough. But then when we talk about something else, your hobby, your appearance, your career, your resume, uh-huh, it's not done yet. I still have to work for one more. You know, I, I see web pages of the perfect tech career, the progression of companies, and some people I know are in that exact path right now. What are you pursuing perfection in? And I wonder today in churches across the world, how many people are in pursuit of the perfect faith? Who are saying, you know what? The one thing I would like to accomplish before I die is that my relationship with God is closer to where I want it than when I started. And that I would never be complacent or satisfied, that I could live with imperfection in many other things, but in this one thing, I will be relentless in the pursuit of completeness. I won't rest until I have it, and I will probably die on the way, but that's the direction of my life. What James says is, if that's what you ultimately value, then this is the way you must live. And so our response to suffering is one of the greatest barometers for what we ultimately value. Is it not? You know what you care about most 
by looking at the way you respond to trials and hardship. And if what you want most is a perfect something else, then every trial detracts from that. It's a check in the debit column. But if what you want is a complete faith, spiritual maturity, if you want to die closer to God than you are today, if that is the relentless desire of your heart, every trial is an opportunity to become rich. Every trial is an opportunity to grow. And that's how you'll know where your heart lives. I want to encourage us, alongside all the other things we're pursuing, to be a people who decide my faith will not be a peripheral part of my life. There are a lot of things I can say are good enough, and yet they really are good enough. But in this one area, I will draw a line in the sand and I will say, I don't want to go back from this line. Today's maturity is behind me. I want to be more mature tomorrow than I was today. Do you realize that's God's plan for us? And if we pursue him, that will be the great prize at the end of this life. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Praise him. Would you start making your way up here? Nothing I've said was intending to make light of the real suffering some of you are going through. Some of you are going through suffering right now that others in the church couldn't even begin to relate to. And it's big enough that right now you feel singled out for special treatment. Like God's got it in for you especially. And I want you to know that this message is especially for you, not because I want you to pretend your trials aren't heavy, but because right now you are so susceptible and vulnerable to the screaming lies that are telling you, stop fighting, let go. If you stop fighting and you let go, all could be lost. And so let me add my voice to the voice of the Lord. Don't give up. Don't stop fighting. I'm saying that to you, one human being to another, because our part in this process is important. I know that God is sovereign. I know that Christ is our all in all. But we must not pretend that our role in our spiritual experience is irrelevant. It matters a great deal. Don't stop fighting. Don't give in to what is natural and easy, because all could be lost. But at the same time, let me remind you of the encouraging words of the Apostle Peter who said, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. You will never suffer alone. You will never suffer on your own power, not as long as Jesus lives. So don't stop fighting, but don't ever stop calling out to Jesus because you're not going to win fighting by yourself. I 
I really believe that endurance and steadfastness are in short supply in God's church. We are quitters, a whole lot of us. And God is saying, stop quitting on a journey worth finishing. Fight. Fight. Let's honor him with that response. And I think the right prayer is, God, I will fight, so help me, God. I will fight, so help me, God. Can we just pray that wherever we may be in life? Let's pray that together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.